Right then, right then, welcome to the Not The Top 20 podcast, we are an EFL podcast, today specifically focusing on the Skybet Championship, what the hell happened last weekend? More accurately, George Ellick, who is writing these scripts? We had a 5-3, two 4-3s, the second and third place team both lost from... Friday night when Huddersfield beat West Brom until Sunday afternoon where Barnsley scored an injury time winner to keep slim survival chances alive. That was vintage EFL action. How are you doing today, Mr. George Ellick? I'm good, thank you, Mr. Ali Maxwell. I'm a bit, given that this season's been a bit longer and it's now the 20th of July, I've been saying to you mainly for quite a long time, like, oh, quite excited for August and having some time off. I'm now feeling a little bit anxious that Suddenly, we're going to watch Wednesday evening happen, and then that's just it. Like we've, you know, this long drawn-out season is going to f- actually finish in three days. Um, yeah, I don't know if I'm that up for it anymore. I quite want it to continue. Well, I mean, I'm worried about the fact that there's then two sem- two playoff semi-finals and uh, and a playoff final because that is true. These players in the championship will have played nine league games in 33 days. Some players, outfield players as well, have played every single minute of that. And the thought of then having to have a, a huge finale on Wednesday night in which almost every game has something riding on it, then to go straight into playoff semifinals on Sunday and Monday. I mean, I've got a lot of sympathy to the players, but also just every staff member at every club. Actually, <laughs> like we should say, the restart, which was talked a lot about, there was a lot of discussion about what could go wrong and why it was a bit seemed a bit dangerous and the potential pitfalls. And I think... It's fair to say you have to take your hats off to everyone who's got it on and everyone who's taken part because for the most part, I think it's gone really well from a sort of public health standpoint, the health of the players. There haven't been as many injuries as we expected. And yeah, I think it's worth just taking a bit of time and just saying well done to everyone and the broadcasters as well. I think there's 24 days in a row where Sky showed an EFL game ending today. This is the first game, the first What day. the hell are we going to do at five o'clock today? I don't understand. The first day we- since the 25th of June where there hasn't been a game uh, on the on the telly. So um, we, we wait till Wednesday night. This podcast is going to be a little different to most Monday pods, which are just recaps of the weekend for the most part. Because as we go, we're going to go through the various important parts of the league table, automatic promotion, Playoff places, relegation places, uh, and we're going to both discuss what happened on the weekend with the teams involved, but also pre-cap, which is a word that I'm trialling out, pre-cap Wednesday night's games as well. We start, George, three important games at the top of the league happen this weekend. On Friday night, Huddersfield beat West Brom 2-1, and Leeds United were confirmed as being promoted to the Premier League for the first time in 16 years. On Saturday lunchtime, Stoke beat Brentford, which meant that Leeds were confirmed as the champions of the championship. And on, and on the Sunday, Leeds went to Derby and a half hungover, half rotated Leeds team came from behind to win 3-1. Um, after picking Stoke to win the championship last season, George, and getting that exceptionally wrong. Uh, it's good to get it right this year. Leeds were our pick at the start of the season. Just thought I'd sneak that in. Uh, as if I even need to ask... Are they the rightful champions in your eyes? Yeah, I don't think you need to ask this. Uh, I think they are. They're definitely the rightful champions. They, in my opinion, should have got should have been promoted last season, and they strengthened yet further, uh, both in terms of, of personnel. I think Ben White coming in for Pontus Janssen 
uh, now looks like a bit of a masterstroke and that's you know no slight on Janssen it's just why it was arguably the key player for them in this campaign um, and then individuals who were there from last season just kicking on again uh, and really taking on the the strategy and the mentality of Marcelo Bielsa and you know there were times this season where especially in the last few weeks you can maybe argue that Brentford with the class side West Brom fans will tell you there were times maybe before the turn of the year where they were the best side but there's no doubt in my mind that over the course of the season Leeds are rightful champions and my only possible gripe would be that they didn't do it sooner because there was that little wobble mm. uh, a couple of uh, back in I think it was February or or January um, and if it wasn't for that they'd have turned this up a long time ago so massive congratulations to Leeds it's going to be a very different division next season without them in it a much more open one you have to say as well um, but you know whilst we'll take our prediction of putting Leeds at the top of the pile it wasn't particularly um, against the grain I think most people had them there yeah that's fair enough but it stemmed from a, a belief in Bielsa and given the amount of discussion that centres around Leeds United both from their fans from broadcasters and from fans of other teams as well I think it stemmed in a belief of Bielsa, but also not getting blinded by history, the i.e. Leeds, Leeds are falling apart again. Not not trying to get distracted by, you know, shouts of burnout and, well, they always do this, but actually just trusting what we were seeing. <laughs> and every time you watched this Leeds team, pretty much, let's say they've played 91 league games now under Bielsa, not including playoffs. And almost every time you watched Leeds under Bielsa, you felt like this was the better team in, in the football match. And that goes a very long way. I cast my mind back to their first two games under him. Against Stoke, who were the preseason favourites for promotion last season, and against Derby a few days after that. And both of them were... I basically hadn't seen a team play like that at this level before. He's the best coach I've ever seen at this level by such a long way as well. He makes a bit of a mockery of modern football's obsession with transfers as well. That's one of the things I like most about him. Like, don't get me yeah. wrong. I like thinking of about transfer rumours and recruitment, you know, t- uh, recruitment teams and, and how that can help build a club and take a club forward. But if you, if you cast your mind back to 17-18, Leeds finished the season with Paul Heckingbottom in charge. Liam Cooper was there. Stuart Dallas was there. Luke Ayling was there. Calvin Phillips was there. Um, Matthias Click was there. Uh, Pablo Hernandez was there and I can't think well I mean Pablo you can't not rate but all of those players that I've mentioned I don't think any of us would have said at that stage I could see those guys being the core of a championship uh, champion in two years time and the the fact that Luke Ayling has turned into Cafu um, I mean his (laughs) performances in the last few weeks have been absolutely unbelievable um, it, it speaks so much for Bielsa. So, yeah, huge credit to, to Leeds United. We won't be talking about you much more. Um, and just wanted to nod Phil Hay, really, who covers Leeds uh, for The Athletic. The Athletic are sponsors. Phil is a, and has been for a long time, a, a Premier League standard uh, journalist and reporter. His writing is unbelievable. His podcasts are magnificent. He's just, he's one of the best blokes we've ever dealt with. Uh, an absolute class act and very pleased for him because I mean it's a it's a 24-7 role being the the beat writer if you will for Leeds uh, and yeah it must be pretty stressful at times but he has written which was published as soon as they were promoted 
the primer on this, basically. The story of the last two years, um, his writing over the last few weeks as this promotion grew nearer has been absolutely incredible. And I cannot recommend enough that if you're not reading Phil Hay on Leeds, then you should be, even if you're not a Leeds fan, uh, especially... The recent piece, Marcelo Bielsa, the inside story of a Leeds love affair that made dreams come true. Uh, it's, it's one of the best things I've read on The Athletic. Um, he's also done a, a piece on how they celebrated. And I don't want to go into too many details because I think you should read the piece. But no beers for Bielsa. No beers for Bielsa, George, which I thought was disappointing. A, a nice Argentinian Malbec, maybe. I mean, I haven't read the piece yet. I will be after this, it this conversation. It basically says he want, they once saw him split a pint with one of his analysts last season apart from that he's never been seen drinking in a sort of squad or team context but maybe he does like a, a Malbec at home I wouldn't just like him. just like you and I mate just split one beer every so every couple of months that's and that's the it at uh, theathletic.co.uk forward slash ntt20 is where to go to sign up to the athletic and if you do it with that code theathletic.co.uk slash ntt20 you'll get 50% off uh, your annual subscription and the seven day free trial so you, technically you could just read everything on site in seven days <laughs> and then you'll really know if you want to move forward with your subscription I guess I mean I'm looking forward to seeing Leeds in the Premier League and certainly you know I'm sure Phil's coverage was going to get a lot more attention than it already does and that's a fair bit um, but you know last season you take the three teams that got promoted Sheffield United have obviously kicked on and done very very well um, Norwich, the champions, have had a shocking season, um, sticking to their guns in the way that they wanted to play um, and will be coming back down to the championship next season. It looks like Villa, a side who, for the last part of the season, were arguably the best, certainly in the top three in, in the division, with a run of wins. And they look like they'll be coming back down again after some poor recruitment. With Leeds, I think there is a, a general feeling in the football community whether that's because it's a club of a certain stature and um, that people just expect to press on whether it's because they've got a manager in Marcelo Bielsa who certainly won't be tactically outwitted you wouldn't think by other ones there seems to be this just presumption that they will be more wolves than Norwich and they will certainly just pretty quickly establish their set themselves in mid-table and have ambitions to go further they're going to they're going to be losing Ben White, I think. I mean, there's no, there, there seems to be a, a optimism amongst Leeds fans that Ben White will be staying at the club. But despite Brighton's embarrassment of riches and at centre back, where they just have a ridiculous amount of talented centre backs, it strikes me that if White is available, there will be so many clubs interested in signing him, and arguably Brighton would be foolish to let him go most of the five that they have at their at their you know at their disposal they're going to have to sign Helder Costa which isn't necessarily good you speak about how Bielsa has made a mockery of, of the obsession of the transfers I mean if anything I would say some of the recruitment's been fairly poor and um, Jean-Kevin Augustin is he do they have an obligation to sign him now in the, in the Premier League having basically decided he was surplus to requirements Costa has had a fairly okay second half of the season but I think Leeds fans will be hoping they'll replace him as well it looks like Jack Harrison will be staying next season on loan well I mean um, yeah one, one of the points is again. they didn't have to spend well they didn't spend a load of money on transfer fees last summer of course. Um, but but as as you're saying these loan to buys with obligations they are obliged to spend the money this summer which exactly. might reduce what they can spend on top of it uh, this summer exactly and, and we have to assume that Phillips is going to stay I mean basically what I'm asking you as you're the soothsayer after your TIFO podcast 
um, viral clip of you telling everybody what exactly what would happen with Sheffield United this season. Given that we have to expect Bielsa will stick to, and this is the only time we'll ever do any Premier League analysis on this podcast ever, so don't worry. But this is the last time we're going to be talking about Leeds, so we may as well just touch on it. Do you, do you think that they will be well equipped to stick to their guns, stick to the style that Bielsa will want to play and get results when they go up? Yes, yes. Uh, not necessarily to the extent of Wolves and Sheffield United. I, I wouldn't be bold enough to predict any assault on European places, first and foremost. But I genuinely, genuinely think with the same squad, let's say, this season, with no additions, and that, that's obviously unlikely, with for argument's sake, an acceptable replacement for Ben White, which is clearly needed, and arguably more depth at centre-back as well. But f- for argument's sake, there's an, there's, an, there's an adequate replacement for Ben White. The rest of the team is the same. I think that they would survive fairly comfortably. Uh, it's hard to predict exactly who's coming down from the Premier League, apart from Norwich and two out of Bournemouth, Villa, Watford. I would be very confident looking at some of the other teams there, West Ham, Crystal Palace, Newcastle especially. Um, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of Brighton under Graham Potter, so I can see them improving. But there are at least three teams, put it this way, who are staying up in the Premier League next year that I think I would back this Leeds team to, to be better than, possibly already, um, and, and to finish above. That's not including the two teams that will come up with them from the Championship. So I'm feeling pretty positive about about not being part of a, a relegation battle, put it that way. Yeah, um, I agree. And I think I it's agree. going to be interesting. We've got quite a lot to talk about, so let's move on. I think we should just touch on what happened with West Brom and Brentford, the team in second losing, and their manager, Slaven Bilic, on Friday night. I mean, Steve Maidley, who covers West Brom for The Athletic, says he haven't, hasn't seen him lost for words like that all season. He said the phrase, Bilic said, we crumbled under the pressure and that he was preparing for the playoffs. Whether that was genius mind games I don't know but that just shows what the atmosphere was like for Baggies and their fans on Friday night of course then it all flips when Brentford feeling a different kind of pressure for the first time chucked in a really disappointing performance at Stoke and lost so still very much in West Brom's hands that game against Huddersfield was was fairly grim George West Brom were poor for, for much of that game a lot of credit has to go to Huddersfield and their then manager Danny Cowley for what was a very good tactical setup, a good game plan that the, that the players executed pretty well. Um, they went ahead through a set piece early on. They then were pegged back through an offside goal uh, from Dara O'Shea. And there was a spell where I felt West Brom and their quality might might show. They might start to pull away from Huddersfield. And instead, the opposite happened. They kept them at arm's length for the most part and they executed one brilliant uh, attack with O'Brien and Smith Rowe, a little bit of quality and, and, and saw the game out. So... That was kind of an interesting one. Uh, before we talk about Brentford Stoke, the news then comes out yesterday that Danny Cowley is probably feeling pretty pleased with himself, having secured safety for Huddersfield and having outwitted, to a certain degree, one of the best managers in the league. Uh, is then told that he's no longer Huddersfield manager. This one surprised everyone, Huddersfield fans and neutral fans. What on earth has gone on at Huddersfield? Why have they removed Danny Cowley from his post? I mean, looking at it from a pure footballing standpoint, because we don't really know what's going on behind the scenes, and you have to guess that you know this this result against West Brom was the result that meant that Huddersfield will certainly be playing Championship football next season, and that the Cowley brothers 
fulfilled the task they were asked to fulfill. So you'd have to guess that in the time between that game on Friday evening and the announcement yesterday afternoon, there had been a conversation between the Cowleys and the club about plans for next season. And you have to, because it can't be a footballing reason unless they have literally decided there is another candidate who we're going to speak about in a second who is just better than them. Because this 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 decision is going to cost money. I mean, they signed a contract during the season for a fair whack. So Huddersfield have taken a stance that whatever reason it is that they want to get rid of them is what is is worth paying that cost. Um, so whether it's to do with budgets for next season, whether it's to do with um, the expectations that, that the Cowley brothers are expected to uphold, we don't know. But from pure footballing standpoint, it's annoying because I was going to tweet something about this and I got waylaid during the game. But I thought the if there's ever an occasion where this was a tactical victory for a manager, this was it. It was totally and utterly Huddersfield just outwitting um, Slaven Bilic's West Brom because so often we will see it wasn't a case of getting ahead. It was the tactics they employed both when they went ahead and when the scores were, were then level. But you'll normally see clubs who are so desperate for points very much sit off and let the team, the dominant team, dictate the play. Whereas if you look at, for example, Romain Sawyer's pass map from the game, they basically didn't allow him to get on the ball anywhere in the middle of the park inside Huddersfield's half. And that is the way. I mean, he, everybody talks about how Sawyer is, is the metronome for West Brom and how important he is and how that pivot with Livermore is so key to the way they play and the way that they control games. Livermore was subbed off at half-time because they couldn't wrestle control of the game at all. And if you look at where West Brom had possession, they were basically forced out wide. I mean, Pereira got on the ball a lot, but it was mainly in, in the wide channels. And um, and Sawyer's just basically couldn't get involved in the game at all. So Cowley's decision, basically just to maintain that press and ensure that that West Brom weren't given the time to use their technical advantage. And let's remember as well that they were incredibly unlucky to be drawn back to level as well with a an offside goal where O'Shea was offside and Diangana interfering with play by blocking the, the view of the keeper. Um, and then they go then they go ahead and, and, and get the goal on the break. So what you're saying is Cowley gets a lot of credit me. for Friday night and that's probably not a but bad it, last result to have if you're now out of work and there are a few championship sides looking for a new manager. Well, I mean, there's obviously been talk about both Birmingham and Bristol City, but I think that's probably, I can't imagine the reason for their sacking is anything to do with that because then it, it wouldn't be a sacking. They would be entitled to compensation. Yeah, yeah. What and I'm, I'm sure saying is, maybe, maybe but, what I'm saying is this isn't the end of the world for, for the Cowleys. And even if it must be frustrating to have their job sort of half done, I guess, in their eyes, the, the first objective having been keep us up when you appoint them in 23rd place. Over the course of their tenure, they've been the fifteenth best team in the league. Which you know, it's not going to, it's not going to raise the pulse necessarily, but it's absolutely the job that they were brought in to do in the short term. Mm. Um, I guess what I'm saying is, I had a flash, a moment where I thought, do you reckon they feel annoyed that they ever left Lincoln, given their status there? And then I realised actually no, because their stock is higher even than when they left Luton, uh, Lincoln rather, because. The one question mark there was, yeah, they've been great in non-league, great in League Two. They've headed into League One, but they've never managed in the Championship. Well, now they have, so that's that one sort of question mark. Do you cancelled? Do you think the Cowleys will be in a Championship job on the first day of next season? I think they'll be in a Championship job by the first of December. I don't yeah. know for sure. All right, if 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 you're saying that they'll be in a job by the first of August, you're saying that you well, sorry, the 1st of September, whatever, you're saying 
well, I'd be saying I know that Bristol City want them or I know that Birmingham want them or I know that Borough are not keeping well, it, Warnock and they want them. And, yeah, I don't, I mean, and I don't know that, do I? So, no. I don't know the ins and outs of those of those sort of searches. Um, just to, to, to move things on a bit, I mean, I've heard it suggested that the chairman, Phil Hodgkinson, that, you know, as with a lot of big decisions, it's not necessarily one major uh, one major factor, but maybe a mixture of things, that this is a, a guy who has a lot of control at the club. They do have a, a head of football operations in Lee Bromby. He's, new, he's fairly new to the role. I thought maybe this was his first sort of big decision, like that the previous head of football operations, David Webb, he hired the Cowleys. That was like his first remit, his first job. He did that. But he, he was announced as having left in February. Lee Bromby taking over. And I thought maybe he wanted his own man. But I've had it suggested to me that it's basically the chairman, Phil Hodgkinson, who clearly has a lot of power and wants to make these decisions. And for reasons of style of play was a factor. It is what I've been told anyway. Of course, this is not confirmed. And I want to make that I find clear. That but start, so weird. I, I, I agree. I agree. But, but, but even I, even not in isolation that West Brom game, like the, the way they play has been very different to the to the Cowleys at Lincoln. Like they, I mean, it has been gen- pretty grim at times. Like but you've got to credit if, if how you, good they've been defensively recently. But it's been a tough watch going forward. If you are certainly pretty toothless going forward, but in terms of kind of like long ball ratio and possessional stats, mm. it's 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 like vastly different. I mean, they have basically, especially recently, basically dominated the ball in most games. Also... Which is not something we saw very who, often at Lincoln. Who so. would you say plays, um, like, really stylish, attractive football in the Championship? Because when I was thinking about it last night, you've, you have you have to say Leeds, you know, you, you, you'd say Brentford, you'd say maybe Fulham, although it's not always particularly entertaining. They just keep no, the ball. I'd say, yeah, I would Brom, say, I would say the say. third... Yeah, West Brom, mostly due to the... Individual quality, rather than the system, which is kind of what you're asking for if you want a, a stylish tactical manager. The third most entertaining team, I think, is probably Barnsley. <laughs> like, yeah. but that's kind of a partly due QPR. to the, partly due to the chaos around it. So, I, I mean, look, I think we're both in agreement that if it's to do with quality of football and aesthetics, that seems very dangerous. Um, and we might as well mention who is heavily linked to take over. Uh, Phil Hay reporting it this morning. They will have to pay compensation for him because he's the current manager or head coach of the Leeds United under-23s. He's also a first-team coach under Marcelo Bielsa. It is Carlos Corberan. Quite hard to say from our perspective what he will be like and what his style of play will be like. He was actually <laughs> at Leeds. It's hard to say. He was actually name. <laughs> no. He was actually at Leeds before Bielsa arrived. So he was. He's not a pure Bielsa disciple or assistant. He was there before. But he's been managing the under-23s and he's been uh, also a first-team coach under Bielsa. You would, it's hard to imagine he wouldn't be quite influenced by, uh, by El Loco. Uh, and that is a very interesting appointment. And, you know, I don't know what name we could have heard to make us go, OK, that kind of makes sense. You, you've definitely got an upgrade. I don't know who that would have been. But it's, it's probably not Carlos Corberan, is it? Because we, we really don't know for sure at this stage. It's uh, bizarre. And just... Given that Jan Sieverts was the manager, and I, and I, I, it annoys me when people take two managers who are both um, from different nationalities and different people entirely, and have totally different characters, and lump them together because they're both um, either unknowns or because their history is being a youth team manager. Um, but it, it does seem interesting that they have appointed Jan Sievert, like got rid of him and brought in someone in Danny Cowley who has lots of kind of 
there doesn't seem to be a blueprint is what I'm trying to get at here from, from Huddersfield's appointment since David Wagner left. Um, but I mean, it's going to be, it's, it's, it's a big risk. And I, and I wonder, you know, there was a lot of talk about how much the Cowleys were earning when they went in at Huddersfield. And you have to assume that Corboran will not be, um, will not be commanding such a wage. And so maybe, maybe it's, it's, it's COVID related. Um, at the end of the day, mm. uh, maybe I mean, for all we know, there was a clause in the, the Cowley's contract to say that they could pay them off at the end of the season for X amount. And they decided to do that and, and bring in yeah. someone a bit cheaper. I mean, yeah, my, of all the clubs in the league, the one that still has two years left of parachute payments, having received a very large parachute payment this mm. last year, that yeah. that wouldn't necessarily fly. But, you know, I'm not privy to every club's um, f- financial figures uh, and nor am I privy to their planning let's move on Brentford losing to Stoke George what did you make of, uh, of this game it was wow I mean you can imagine as a as a Brentford fan you you've got to remember that you won eight league games in a row and teams don't win every single match but I mean it was a frustrating watch uh, if you're a Bees fan and, and you were hoping for them to Make, to take advantage of, of West Brom's defeat and, and move into second and have things in their hand. Instead, they, they lost 1-0 and they were fairly flaccid. Yeah, Brentford were very poor. Stoke were, were very, very good. Um, a combination of the two things. I thought Brentford were very wasteful um, in possession at times, which is unlike them. I thought Jensen had a particularly poor game. De Silva as well um, just really struggled to control that midfield as they so often do. Both Ben Rama and Watkins' decision-making in the final third was, was pretty atrocious, often looking for shots when there was another pass available. Um, and there was a very un-Brentford plan in the second half of playing these kind of quite strange chipped balls into the box, which, you know, aside who have been so well drilled into creating high um, percentage chance shot opportunities mm. seem to forget what they were doing a bit and, and against a back three as well of, of Martin Zindi and Danny yeah. Bart and someone else I can't remember and Brentford fans will point to the two possible penalties I thought they probably were both penalties I think the first one certainly with Martin Zindi um, taking a tug was, was pretty blatant um, but at the same time if you're a Brentford fan you've got to look at that game and say that they just weren't good enough on the day. And you might be unlucky not to get that penalty. You might be unlucky that your your keeper, who's been so good this season, David Raya, parries the ball into Lee Gregory's path. Um, but I, I don't think you can have any complaints. I thought Stoke just did a job on them that we haven't seen many teams able to do. And maybe, you know, it's one of those things where they've won eight games in a row, so you think they're just going to keep winning. But actually, that is always going to come to an end. Yeah. And that run, you know, they, they had to try and make it last for two more games and, and they, they failed to do so. Um, and, I, you know, it's, it's too easy a rhetoric to say, you know, the pressure was on and they and they, they didn't produce. Um, but for whatever reason, I thought Stoke just were able. You know, this, this Stoke side under Michael O'Neill is a top half side um, and have been very, very good at home recently. And once they go ahead, once they went ahead, they just never really like getting into it. One, one very, very good save from Davis. Um, it has to be said mm. later on. James Chester, George. James Chester. He was the third centre back that I forgot, and that was rude <laughs> of me. Great friend of the Going Up, Going Down pod, James Chester, and uh, he was excellent. He made two tackles on the floor, having slipped over, which was, I mean, absolute carnage. Um, Stoke played very well, as you say, especially without the ball. It means that they have picked up forty-five points from thirty games since. O'Neill took charge. That's 
1.5 points per game. Generally, that sort of playoff chasing form over the course of a season. So there's plenty for them to build on. Could Michael O'Neill be the one to shake off the, the Stoke Malays and build a, a good team that will be a good team for, a, for the whole season? That's a, a big question ahead of next season. Uh, I dare say that they'll be... So I'm not saying they'll be among the favourites for the division, but they might well be uh, well-backed because O'Neill's done an excellent job there. And it's a good time to mention something that I researched last night, which I thought was an excellent piece of work on a Sunday night, if I may say so myself. But, George, there have been eight managerial changes in the Championship this season. In-season managerial changes. I'm not counting Gary Monk because Steve Bruce left before the start of the season. That was not results-based. Eight results-based changes, right? Cowley at Huddersfield came in in 23rd, 15th best record since then, and they're safe. Rowett came in at Millwall. They were 17th. They've had the 6th best record in the division since, and they just miss out on the playoffs. Struber came in when Barnsley were 24th. They've had the 14th best record since, although they are clearly not safe. Bowen came in at Reading. They were 22nd at the time. They've had the 8th best record in the league since. O'Neill came in at Stoke when they were bottom with 8 points from 15 games. They've had the eighth best record since. Neil Harris went in at Cardiff when they were 14th. They've had the fifth best record since and made the playoffs, we think. Nathan Jones came in at Luton. He's obviously only had a few games post-lockdown. They were 23rd when he came in. They've actually had the seventh best record since he came in, although that is a very small sample size. Uh, but you would say clearly had a positive impact and given them a chance for survival where it, it looked like it was going to be very tough. And Warnock, of course, came in with Borough just above the relegation zone, but really threatened by it. Um, and they've been safe. So eight managerial changes. And, you know, given we're two people that do not advocate for chopping and changing your manager very often, and we don't really believe in a new manager bounce as a, as a concept uh, in, a, in a particularly big way, um, that's pretty impressive. Eight out of eight, basically, have improved. Mm. Um, and you have to say fair play. And then you've got a big example of Wigan, who did not change their manager, and they were completely justified in doing that because Paul Cook's an absolute genius. So uh, I thought that was kind of interesting and kind of cool. And, yeah, and, and you also got to think the other team who haven't changed the manager, obviously, are Charlton. <laughs> I was going to say Hull. <laughs> and, and, well, no, I was going to say, and if Lee Bowyer can, can keep them up, it would be a job well done as well. Mm. Um, Hull is probably the only one you can look at as maybe the manager being somewhat culpable, but it wasn't his decision to get rid of his two best players on deadline day in January. So I think we have to cut him a little bit of slack. Well, so this is- I was going to say maybe uh, those who run clubs are getting smarter, but then I look at the uh, financial landscape of the championship and I think actually maybe that would be giving them a bit too much credit. Um, uh, let's, let's sort of tie up the second place scenario in a bow. I mentioned that Fulham, who have been on a really good run of like really low scoring games recently just decided to knock out a 5-3 win against Sheffield Wednesday. 3-0 up at half time, 5-3 at full time and they've got a shot at the automatic promotion places and they're having a pretty good moment you have to say at the moment uh, as mentioned, really good form we haven't always bought into the, the performances uh, matching the, the positive results but you have to say, I think the most notable thing for me to say at the moment with Fulham is that players who were previously fringe players in my eyes and not really contributing much to this team seem to be coming to the fore towards the end of the season. Cabano had a, a big game uh, on the weekend. Josh Onomer has come into the team and looks looks like he's taken quite a big leap. I don't know what he was doing uh, during lockdown, but he is looking fabulous, which is what they needed because a lot of the time this season, their central midfielders lacked a bit of thrust. So some quite welcome <laughs> stuff. What that means, George, is on Wednesday night... West Brom play QPR 
Brentford play Barnsley and Fulham travel to Wigan. And the situation is that if West Brom win, they will come second and be automatically promoted. Uh, If they draw and Brentford win, then Brentford will be automatically promoted. If they draw and Brentford draw and Fulham don't win, Brentford will be automatically promoted on goal difference. Fulham could still be promoted if they beat Wigan and West Brom lose and Brentford draw or lose. That way, Fulham would be on 83, West Brom on 82 and Brentford on 82 or 81. So it's all to play for. The The thing is, the team who are there to be shot at have, on paper, you'd say that the most pleasant fixture, wouldn't you? West Brom playing against QPR. Well, you would. And you certainly would have done before the weekend. But QPR put in quite a display. Um, and they look really up for the game. Um, I know we probably wouldn't have spoken about it otherwise. Um, but against Millwall, they beat a decent Millwall side um, for, was it 4-3 four, four, at the end? Yeah. 4-3. Um, and I don't know, I mean, if you see Todd Kane's goal, it puts them 4-2 up in the match. Like, those aren't players who are phoning it in. Like, they celebrated as if that was a massive goal. I mean, I don't know if that's because it's uh, something of a London derby or just because once you've taken the lead three times, you, you don't really want to give it away. Um but there was a lot to be impressed with in that performance. I mean, it seems like I say Samuel will be leaving the club and therefore won't be playing on the uh, on the on the on the weekend, sorry, midweek. Um, but Eze scored a lovely goal. Ilias chaired it very lively as well. Um, Kakai on the right hand side looks like a like a very very good player. So I'm not. They're playing against a side who have the attacking capabilities mm-hmm. to hurt them, is what I would say. Yeah. If you and if you look at West Brom's last two games. They conceded plenty of chances against Blackburn. They've conceded way too many chances against Huddersfield and conceded twice. So I, I'm not necessarily, I'm not disagreeing with you that it's the, it's the, it's the best of the of the three. I would say that as much as I, I, I agree with you and I do like Gerhard Struber's Barnsley, they are still very much in the relegation zone. And under Struber, they've certainly been the 14th best team. And we saw what Brentford did at Griffin Park to a Wigan side who was you know, trending at a much higher level. Um, so I'd still expect Brentford to win that. With Fulham, my biggest concern for Fulham now, on top of the fact that Wigan are obviously very good at home at the moment and have a hell of a lot to play for, is that Harrison Reed will be suspended for the game. And that yeah. is a big miss for them because he was sent off very late on the weekend. And he has been, you know, whilst the likes of Mitrovic and Kearney and Arta have been in and out of the side, he's been the constant and yeah. has been very important to what they're doing. And so he'll be a big miss. Well, I mean, they're in a nice position, aren't they, Fulham? I, I, was, so. I chatted to yeah. a couple of Fulham fans yesterday. I'm pushing the whole Fulham could still get automatics. I don't really think the fans necessarily are. Uh, and but this is the championship. Well, exactly, exactly. It is the championship. Uh, it's going to be really interesting. Wednesday night. Uh, I haven't actually confirmed this to you yet, George, but we're going to be together. You floated an idea that involved us watching these games together on Wednesday night with a couple of beers to take the edge off and potentially doing some Instagram lives or something around it. Uh, And I'm buying into it. I'm all in. So I'll see you then. Um, We we will have some interest in the playoff race, although you'd say it's uh, the least interesting of the the three major things to sort out uh, because Cardiff stood up to the pressure. And got a big win at Middlesbrough on the weekend. 3-1 winners. It does help when 
you're allowed a free header six yards out after like 10 minutes and your centre-back heads in. Um, but big credit to them because as every team at this level has, uh, they did have a little wobble just after punching their way into the playoff places uh, and they look secure-ish at the moment. Not entirely though because Swansea are there to get them. They beat Bristol City 1-0. I don't have a huge amount to say about the game against Bristol City. Uh, it was a nice follow-up finish from Connor Roberts after an unbelievable strike from Connor Gallagher that hit the bar. Um, but let's talk about Wednesday night because Forrest, who lost to Barnsley, and I want to talk about that game, but I want to talk about it more from a Barnsley sense, and therefore we will wait till the relegation segment of the podcast. But Forrest could drop out of the playoffs. Like, it's it's unlikely, but it's possible. So we have to we have to say that in... They're so far under the radar, they might just go off it. <laughs> in terms of matches that matter for the playoff situation, right? Nottingham Forest need just a point to secure a playoff spot. That will be fine. And if they match or better Cardiff's result, they'll finish above them. That's pretty straightforward. For Cardiff, uh, a draw or a win, just any point would also secure their playoff place because Swansea are three points behind them. And if they better Forest's result, then they'll move above them. Uh, if Cardiff lose and Swansea beat Reading, Cardiff will drop out of the playoffs and Swansea will take their place because of their superior goal difference. It's also possible that Swansea could take Nottingham Forest's playoff spot it's unlikely though they have to win and Forest have to lose and a five goal swing to occur as well uh, there's a five goal difference between them the Swans have scored more goals than Forest so if they finish level on goal difference Swansea will be above them um, and it's going to be kind of fascinating Forest have, have got to play Stoke who are safe um, that you know they're looking to finish between 15th and 18th really not a huge amount to play for Cardiff are playing Hull Plenty to play for, and also one of the worst teams we've seen at this level for a while. Uh, and Reading uh, are hosting Swansea, so Swansea are playing a team who don't seem to be particularly motivated at the moment anyway. So good chance that Swansea win, is what I'm saying against Reading. And if they do, Forrest and Cardiff have to make sure that they are bang at it, I think it's fair to say. Um, anything to add on the on the playoff, Chase? Just if I was a, a Forrest fan, um, I'd be pretty concerned about the way that Reading seem to be um, performing in recent weeks because they're, they're a massive Jekyll and Hyde team at the moment. Um, they have, you know, they've beaten Luton 5-0 away. They've been dispatched by Brentford 3-0. Their last game was a 4-3. So when, when it comes down to, and we often talk about on the betting show about, you know, low margin games where there's only going to be a goal or two here or there, that, I know that Swansea aren't necessarily the most prolific side, but that Reading-Swansea game feels like a very high-margin game. That feels like a match where basically any scoreline is possible, um, which is not ideal mm. because we've seen with this Reading side, as we did on on, uh, on Saturday, you know, Blackburn were 2-0 up after six minutes and then any defensive work basically went out the window. Mm. Um, so that is, I mean, in a, in a funny way, I don't know what we're going to have on our screens because I presume we're going to have you know, a couple of iPads, a TV, a laptop, yeah. all sorts. Yeah. But I think in terms of pure entertainment, even if after half an hour it becomes obvious it's not going to be that important, I would want to start off by watching that Reading-Swansea game because Swansea are going to go into that being like, right, we don't only need to win this, we need to win this at yeah. 5-0. And they're playing it to side who've conceded a few goals. So an it's, still, it's still open. An excellent point. Uh, Reading were part of a, a great dead rubber on the weekend, 4-3 against Blackburn, as you said. Just lovely... End of season vibes, this one. Uh, and from a Blackburn perspective, notable because 
Ben Brereton scored, which has not happened very often. And he Sam Gall- big, doesn't he? And Sam Gallagher scored, who's also very big. That doesn't happen very often. And they ended the game with seven academy graduates on the pitch. So really lovely end of season vibes up at Ewood Park and a 4-3 win. Uh, and Reading fans, as they as they do, already sort of wringing their hands a little bit. Bit of pressure on Mark Bowen from the fan base. And uh, there you go. That's one to look out for is, over the next few months. And Millwall is, also were part of a 4-3, but it was the wrong side. And it, it, push, it pushes them out of the playoff race. Must be really disappointing, to be honest, going to a QPR side that had, I believe, the worst record post-lockdown, or certainly one of the, one of the worst records, uh, losing 4-3. And a Berrieze scores against you. Uh, with the club having released him as an 18, 19-year-old. Couldn't have gone much worse for Millwall there. Uh, A a team that we thought would, at the very least, keep keep QPR pretty quiet, but might struggle to nick the goal they need. Uh, In the end, it was the opposite. Four goals conceded. uh, A pretty spectacular way to end your playoff hopes. Um, Let's talk about Forrest's game against Barnsley, George. I mean, Gerhard Struber's stock has risen so much since Thursday when they played against Leeds... And general consensus was they gave Leeds one of their hardest games of the season, didn't take their chances, gave away what looked to be quite an avoidable goal, an own goal. Uh, The defender himself said afterwards, I would have cleared that nine times out of ten. But this one, I just accidentally kicked it in my own goal. Um, (laughs) But everyone was going like, wow, even if they get relegated, look at how well this Struber team play. Then they play Forest. They absolutely battered them. It might have been an injury time winner, but... I mean, I watched a 10-minute highlights package and I can't think of a Forest chance that I saw apart from just before the goal where they had a two-on-one and Graben basically slipped over the ball. The last man for Barnsley was Styles, won it back and then started the attack that ended with Schmidt scoring the winning goal. Um, from a Forest perspective, quickly, fans pretty upset, as you can imagine, um, losing against the team at the bottom, making the last day nervy, even if it's still very likely they'll get a playoff place. It looked like... Lamucci was just trying something, experimenting something. Felt like he had the opportunity to try something before it gets a bit serious with the playoffs. He played a, a 3-4-1-2 formation with Graben and Costa up front. Uh, with with Thiago Silva in the hole, uh, Watson and Sau in midfield, uh, as always. Three centre-backs of Dawson, Figueredo and Worrell. Uh, and Jenkinson and Ribeiro as wing-backs. And uh, it just didn't work at all. They got completely outplayed by this Barnsley side, who everyone has become quite fond of, George. I mean, we've given Sabri Lamucci a lot of credit for his tactical analysis this season. If Nottingham Forest fall out of the playoffs, that gamble he's played in this game will go down as one of the most foolish things he possibly could have done. Mm. Because you know, we've spoken as well about the importance of, of making sure that you're not playing against whoever finishes third. So not only are they risking finishing in that seventh position, which could mean they come up against Brentford or West Brom rather than likely Fulham, but they have also now in danger of slipping out completely. I mean, massive credit to Barnsley, as you say, because they are certainly not playing like a team who are, who should be in the bottom three at the moment. And Struber deserves immense credit for that. Um, but they, but you know, this is a Forest side who who do have who should feel like they have something to play for. Absolutely phoning it in um, in terms of the team they put out and the performance itself. So, yeah, if, if I was a Forest fan, I'd be. I'll be very angry that Wednesday night is going to be such a a stressful watch, let's say, when if they had just put out their strongest team, you'd think this this would have been avoidable. Mm. Um, I know that I know they were two minutes away from from getting over the line anyway, but it just seems it just seems like madness. Mm. I mean, 
just play your strongest team for this game and then rest people or experiment in the last game of the season. They're now winless in five, um, which is not where you want to be going into the playoffs. It, yeah, I, I I think it was a, a big clang of this. I, in my opinion. I reckon Barnsley are a mid-table, if not top-half team between both boxes. Um, and they've let themselves down in both boxes. We've we kind of been hinting at it throughout the season, really. But now it's become very clear. Like, if you look at the underlying data, and some people like to look at that, and some people don't particularly like to look at that. But, you know, XG data over the course of the season says that the based on the chances they create and the chances they give up, they are basically a mid-table team on a par with QPR, Middlesbrough, and Wigan, uh, and Reading. And uh, it, you just have to look at the shot conversion stats to see that uh, they have only scored 7.5% of all of their shots. Now, that is because Cordy Woodrow shoots from 30 yards more than pretty much anyone else in the whole league. Um, but they have the worst conversion rate by an absolute mile. To put that into context, Bristol City score with 13% of their shots. So uh, almost at double the rate. So, you know... They could still stay up. That's the exciting thing. They've given themselves a chance. I just want to shout out Patrick Schmidt as well, who scored the winning goal um, using the FB Ref website in the week. I, I noticed that he was the most subbed on player in the whole of the championship. He's like basically consistently this season been subbed on for 12 minute cameos. In a lot of them, he's barely touched the ball, but he's also scored two injury time winners uh, against Millwall before lockdown and, and now in this game as well. So that's why, George, and we've said it before, you cannot use appearances and goals as a way to judge a striker if you looked at his season performance you'd see 26 appearances and three goals and you'd say oh what a terrible striker it's a terrible record in reality he's only played about 400 minutes and his goals per minute or his minutes per goal rate is quicker than well most of the strikers in the division so there you go um what else do we need to talk about when we're talking about the relegation battle hull nil hull nil luton one for example Yes, um, a good performance from Luton here. I mean, Hull started off pretty brightly in the game. Mm. Um, and it wasn't, you know, anyone who listened to the betting show, it didn't really follow the script we were necessarily expecting. Um, but, you know, there's been some talk about managers of the year and stuff. Like, If you did, if we were to do the Not the Top 20 Manager of the Year awards today, Ali, mm. where where would we put Nathan Jones, who's only managed like seven games? Uh like definitely not in the top three or five or six. I just Why? Don't, well, I just don't think you can. Surely you, me- surely you measure a, man- a manager's performance by the impact they have over a club season. I think there's a, there's basically a minimum uh, minimum games managed in the season that you you're, have. You're saying thre- there's a, a threshold. threshold. Yeah, there has to be a threshold, George. You're being, okay, well, you're trying to be disruptive here, and I and no, I respect it and I like it, but he wouldn't be. He he can't. He's, he doesn't well, apply. Let's rename it then as the most impactful manager of the season award. And I would have him up there. I mean, it's, it's just remarkable what he's done. Um, he deserves, I mean, and they might still get relegated, in which case he probably wouldn't get there. I was going to say, but, um, you'd, have to, you'd have to have Cowley taking Huddersfield out of the relegation zone, O'Neill taking uh, Stoke no, out of the relegation no, zone, Struber and what he's done at Barnsley. Absolutely not. If you, if you look at, um, I mean, I don't want to get too technical again, if you look at comparative prices of, of relegation for each of those clubs when, when, when they're, they're taking over, unless Struber does take them up, but even then, like Luton were, were basically relegated when he came in. I mean, that was the general consensus. They were like one to 10 for relegation. 
and he had a far less time to far less time to turn it around. I mean, I, I have no question that, and I, you know, in terms of, of pure impact, what Jones has done is more impressive than 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 certainly O'Neill and Cowley. Um, despite what they what they've done in terms of a kind of a longer project being very impressive. Um, but on onto the game itself, the, like massive similarities to the Barnsley result where it just felt like Luton were dominating and creating so many chances in that second half and it was just not going to be their day. Um, and for Loire Loire, it feels like there's, there's a lot of goals going in over lockdown where it's like a rolled shot from 25 yards <laughs> that kind of finds the corner. I don't know what it is about no crowds. Maybe it's... Um, He's so I love Luwalua. Like in, he's where they're shooting. I just love him. He was it's one of the best sub appearances I've ever seen. It was so impactful. As you say, Luton were not at their best here. Hull were also not at their best. It was it was a tough watch at times this game. Basically until Luwalua came on and then he's one of those players where I think mostly off the bench. You don't see this as often when he starts a game. But the way that he carries the ball, his basically his dribbling ability is, is right up there. Like it's so hard to stop him. He's got tricks, but he's also just got this like agility and balance and speed. Um, he can go both ways, and I mean, it, and it's it, it's borne out in the stats. If you look at like dribble success rates uh, for individual players in the championship, Luwalua is always like right up there. And sometimes you think, well, because he comes off the bench a lot, you have to sort of caveat that he's up against tired defenders. You know, you can't necessarily compare him to someone who starts every game, like an Eze or a Pereira or a Ben Rama. And yet, then you watch him and you're like, actually, he is more or less unstoppable when he's on his game. Um, what a- and quite fun to think that he was also released at the end of last season. Yeah. You know, but basically, he, he re-signed for the club on the 22nd of July, 2019. So Maybe. this time a year ago, he'd, he'd been released by Luton. And then here he is a year, a year later, scoring a crucial goal to try and help them up. Can, I was, can we agree, um, just going back to your manager of the year point, can we just agree that there are a load of managers that we really like in the league at the moment yes. that we think are doing really good jobs? Yes. Which I is quite fun, isn't it? And two of them, I was I was interested to see the, um, or even three of them, the comparisons for the last minute winner stakes in terms of um, celebrations. We saw, we, we had Luton, which was very much a, a bench huddle. Um, and I texted you at the time saying how much I enjoyed the Nathan Jones classic of going absolutely mental and then telling everyone to calm down very quickly afterwards <laughs> when you realise that actually there's a bit longer to play. You have the Gerhard Struber of just running onto the pitch. Yeah. Um, completely. And, and then I don't know who it is. It's a player and a member of staff in the background of the camera shot are like rolling on the floor, hugging together, <laughs> which is which is a nice one. And then you've got the Charlton, which I guess we're going to talk about now, the Macaulay Bond goal late on, where it was just every man for themselves and kind of Bond <laughs> running around on his own, all the players running around on their own, the bench going crazy together. Um, I mean, it's hard to think of three. I mean, I know that individually, each one was terrible news for the other teams. But to have, I mean, it's, it's shocking for Wigan. I mean, all three of those goals are yeah. unbelievably bad news That's for Wigan. That's a good point. But to have three injury time goals um, of that significance all in the same relegation race over the same week- weekend was just high drama, Ali. High yeah, drama. It really is. It really is. It really was. Uh, I'm going to tell you a couple of things about Charlton Wigan, which I uh, I followed. I actually, watched the game. I think Charlton are one of the teams that uh, that shunned I follow. They've got their own valley pass. So I, I gave... I gave £10 to Charlton, which given I'm still not entirely clear who owns the club is uh, concerning. I don't know who's getting that. Uh, but uh, flippancy aside, it was it was another really enjoyable watch for the neutral. I mean, miserable for, for both sets of fans involved just because uh, of what was at stake. Um, and Wigan, 
managed the game very well. They're a team that has won a lot of football matches recently and you could kind of see why. The fact they were 2-1 up at half-time and yet the general feeling was how are Charlton behind? I think kind of sums it up um, both the strength of Wigan and how calm they are in the final third uh, and how good an attacking side they've become uh, and playing to their strengths with the attacking fullbacks. Robinson was excellent uh, for the second goal. Uh, Dal finishing it off, but uh, Moore and Jamal Lowe as well involved uh, in the first goal as well. And But but Charlton were the dominant side between both boxes at that stage, um, which they had been kind of the week before against Reading as well. They were showing a lot of intensity and they were working it really well. They just couldn't get either the final ball or the final finish. Macaulay Bond, just to recap his week, last weekend is, I think, uh, called out makes it too negative. But Lee Bowyer said very specifically, we cannot be missing the chances that we missed. And, and that was quite clearly aimed at Macaulay Bond, who'd had a lot of good chances. It was a, a bold thing to do to call out a young player. And it seemed to have worked. He scored in midweek. Uh, it, was a, it was an important goal. Uh, and then he missed a one-on-one early on in this game or certainly in the first half and it just I mean I was just so sad for him it was such a good chance it was an amazing ball from Naby Sarr Mr. Mm. 1-1 and, one, and you just thought confidence wise that's got to be such a such an issue uh, and there he was in the 93rd minute showing unbelievable composure to control a flick on and guide it into the far corner just rolled so, it a yeah. roller coaster uh, uh, week for Macaulay Bond a brilliant performance from young left wing back Alfie Doty who's been a real sort of breakout star this season kind of out of what nowhere what a goal that is he was playing at, he was playing at Kingstonian last season I watched him play in the Isthmian League um, and I've been tracking his progress and I did not expect him to be looking like a very strong left wing back for this division when he was playing <laughs> when he was playing left wing in in non-league's third tier last season but play for Bromley this season yeah, as well just a brilliant strike at the back post that, that is yeah i mean it's one of those where you look at it and you think that the keeper marshall should do better but the um technical difficulty of meeting a ball on the volley mm. like it's a it's like a 50 yard crossfield pass yeah. he's met first time on the dip like i'm pretty sure marshall had no expectation to have to be making that save as the ball came across. Mm. Um, yeah, really, really impressive for him to do that. And, you, you know, you sent over a um, the team sheet, the Charlton team sheet, just before the game started on Saturday. And you made the point saying, like, look at these players. Like, how? How are they getting such a tune out of these players? Mm. Like, are they just... I'm, I'm pretty sure, and I guess we are the same. Like, I'm not expecting this Charlton team, if you take the players... And you have a look at where their careers are in three or four years' time. I don't think they're going to be players that necessarily kick on further than this level or, or even necessarily stay at this level. So to be getting the performances that they are getting out of them, especially with key players missing, is is just an unbelievable job. I mean, I, mean I, I don't I really re- hope they stay up. I can't remember exactly what I... Deserves it. Yeah, I agree. I can't remember exactly how I expressed what I felt about the team sheet. But thinking about it now, like I, I want to give respect to the Charlton players who are who are performing pretty much at, at, at their limit for the Charlton side at the moment. You're right that it reflects very well on the job that Lee Bowie is doing. But just, a, I, I was going to say, I think it's a worse starting eleven on paper than the team that played their playoff final against Sunderland. Partly, partly because, let's not forget, Lyle Taylor is a brilliant goal scorer at the level and isn't playing for them. Christian Bielik 
we rate really, really highly. You know, picked up an injury just as his Derby career was getting going, but I think he's a really good player. And Joe Aribo, who's brilliant as well, who now plays for Rangers and has had a good first season up there. So, you know, those three players were key players for them in their playoff final win, not playing for the club now. Uh, and the fact that they're still alive and with a chance of staying up is, is pretty impressive. From a Wigan perspective, it really looked like they ran out of puff, like the way they... The way they dealt with being ahead was disappointing. I said they, they managed the game well in the first half in that they executed a couple of good attacks and they kind of waited and picked Charlton off. But then they just looked knackered. They sat so deep and they, they didn't deserve to win that game. But it's so damaging that they didn't um, for, for, for Wednesday night and for various permutations, assuming that they get a points deduction, which we cannot do. Uh, on a lighter note for Wigan, watching Cal Naismith start the game on the right wing and then after half an hour move to centre-back was one of my favourite ever bits of uh, in-game tactical switch. That sort of versatility, you, you just can't put a price on it. Uh, and also, Anthony Robinson, I just, I just love him so much. And I want, I wish we could organise a 100-metre race between like the six fastest players in the championship because I think he would win. He's absolutely electric when he gets going. Um, Sounds like an idea to me, that. I would like people who listen up to this point to tweet me who they would like to see in a foot race versus Anthony Robinson. Tell me who you think beats him because I think he wins. Uh, can we? Can we? Can you talk me through? Well, let's discuss. But can you start to talk me through Wednesday night, the fixtures that matter, what we need to be thinking about in terms of potential points deductions? Like Wigan are appealing against their twelve against their minus twelve. For the sake of the conversation, <clears throat> do we have to assume that they are on forty six points in twenty second? Or do we assume that they're on 58 points in 13th? We, we assume they're on 46, I think. I mean, the, the points deduction has been announced. The only reason it hasn't been applied yet is because this... I mean, it shouldn't be by now because they physically can't finish in the relegation zone. So um, the appeal is pending. From everyone that we've spoken to, or at least I've spoken to, who is in any way privy to what goes on at the EFL, it seems very, very unlikely that the force majeure appeal will will be successful. The reason for that is that there are, you know, there are 90 other English professional football league and Premier League clubs. There are, you know, 70 other EFL clubs who have all been um, held in the same circumstance around coronavirus, that this force majeure idea doesn't really fly because they aren't in administration um, the force majeure surely cannot apply to the mere takeover of the club. The EFL are in no way, whether you like it or not, um, culpable for the takeover and its failure because the fit and proper test was passed. So, and, and you know, accepting this appeal would open a massive, massive can of worms, especially when you have Sheffield Wednesday and Derby awaiting their sanctions as well. Um, you know, if, if Wigan's appeal is is um upheld and the point deduction is ridded then the you know imagine if Sheffield Wednesday a week later I replied the point deduction as well so it's it seems unlikely to me I mean and I'm not saying that I know anything more it just seems unlikely to me so I think we have to assume until we're told otherwise that the point deduction stands um, well, and Sheffield Wednesday, therefore, is kind of the, the big elephant in the room, right? Sheffield Wednesday is the big big elephant in the room. The massive we have to, owl we have to go through, in the we room. We have to go through Wednesday just with that in our mind. You know, we are looking for who's going to finish in the bottom three, not necessarily who's going to be relegated on Wednesday, because there does seem to be... I mean, I noticed that 
that Betfair have taken Sheffield Wednesday off their relegation um, market, I think that is an oversight from their part because I still think they're very, very much in the mix. So Sheffield Wednesday Middlesbrough is a game to keep your eye on for that reason. Um, I would say, you know, Neil Warnock has come out in the press and said that in his opinion, the EFL have to give a result of the Wigan points deduction by the time um, the games on Wednesday are played. I guess you have to apply Sheffield Wednesday to that thinking as well, because it does seem absolute lunacy that going into this game mathematically, Middlesbrough, given what we've been told about the points deduction, Middlesbrough are safe. And then posthumously, so after, you know, after the, the season finishes. After the death of the season. After the death of the season, they could be told, actually, that point deduction has been reversed and you are now relegated. It is fair to assume the motivation and the strategy and tactics of Borough would be very, very different if they knew that there was absolutely something to play for mm. and could work out the permutations. So I'm really hopeful, hopeful in, in the case that I hope, not hopeful in the case that I expect it to happen, that we might get some news before Wednesday because I just feel like this season has been such a mess due to circumstance the EFL have to do everything just to draw a line under it as soon as possible and move on to next season. Because mm. there's there's going to be issues coming up with 2021 contracts as well, with when the season's going to start, whether we can get through it with fans and all this other stuff. And the worst possible case is for the EFL to be dealing with trying to relegate clubs who are then carrying out lawsuits against them. So I'm just crossing everything that by 7.30 or Wednesday, we're going to have a clearer understanding. We are going to know what the table looks like, but I guess I wouldn't necessarily hold my breath. No, I think that's very well said. Um, here's what we know. Hull City are, are bottom with 45 points. Barnsley are second bottom with 46 points and a minus 21 goal difference. Wigan, if we apply a 12 points deduction, are 22nd, also on 46 points, but with a positive goal difference, plus one. And then two points above them, Luton and Charlton. So those are the guys who are really on a knife edge at the moment you'd say um it's almost impossible to go through the fixtures and say what we think is going to happen but just to read them out wednesday night luton host blackburn charlton play at leeds united hull are at cardiff barnsley are at brentford and wigan are against fulham so Four of those five teams are playing against four of the top six teams, which just adds a ridiculous wrinkle. And Luton play against a Blackburn side that look like they're playing the kids, essentially. So as much as you can look at a fixture list and say where you'd rather be, you'd like to be Luton, I think, in this scenario, playing in that game against Blackburn. I'm so fried, and it's not ideal for someone that purports to be an expert in the EFL, but I'm so I'm so fried brain-wise that I, I don't really know what else to say about this relegation situation for fear of saying something or making a statement that could be completely false due to two or three points deductions. Like, it just makes the conversation around this so difficult. The permutations are not clear. It's not as simple as saying, this team need to do this and they'll be fine. Like, it's not as simple as that. Sheffield Wednesday, we're not applying this points deduction to them as we are hypothetically for Wigan because we don't know what it's going to be. But a lot of the murmurs and rumours are that there will be one. We're in a lucky position to be covering a league that is the best league in the world. 
in footballing terms. But it's absolutely maddening how it's just become this wild west of issues and the governance of the division seems to have completely lost control. Um, so it's, <laughs> it's with that quite large cloud hanging over us that we end today's podcast. It's been something of a roller coaster, but um, anything else to add before we let you go? <laughs> Not much, just imploring. I mean, I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, you will do, but I know there's some Premier League football on on, uh, on Wednesday night. I would just recommend that you watch the feast that is in store for us, because if you watch football for the drama, I don't think it's going to get more dramatic than um, than Wednesday evening. There is three, There are three areas of just bonkers... Um, football to be played out and i'm sure there are going to be some twists and turns you mentioned a roller coaster wednesday will be one and we'll be together so please follow us on all the channels to get our live reaction to what's going on on the pitch thank you guys for sticking with us i hope you've enjoyed this podcast i don't know how much clarity we've provided but hopefully uh, you're ready for wednesday night now uh, join us as george said at ntt20 pod on instagram on twitter uh, we will make sure that we are at the forefront of all and any discussion around the championship's final round of fixtures.